0: We have much reason to give thanks, This not only this Thanksgiving season, but each day of our lives as we consider what the Lord has done for us. And I know that in the midst of seasons where it's hard to see those things because of trials and temptations, um, what a joy it is to gather on the Lord's Day morning to remember, remember what's true. And beautiful and good. What's most true about us in Christ. And so we turn our attention to Him once again this morning as we come again to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 11 through 26 today. And we're just footsteps away from the cross at this point. We have been taking step by step each week. And uh, beginning next week, we're going to spend the next couple Sundays at the foot of the cross and uh, it's a holy ground and here uh, we come to the continued trials if you want to call them that and would you uh, follow with me as I read from Matthew chapter 27 11 through 26 hear the word of the living God now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him are you the king of the Jews Jesus said you have said so But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release from the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. But when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the living God. May he write its truths upon our hearts today. Let's ask for his help. Father, we thank you for, for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the love that you had for us to send him. Lord, we thank you for his suffering, his death. We thank you for his perfect righteousness. We thank you that you, in him and through him, have redeemed us as sinful men. And you have set us right alongside of him, heirs along with him. Not because of anything we have done, but only because of grace. So we look to him this morning. We praise him this morning. We want to glorify him this morning in all things. We want to leave this place much more grateful than when we came. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Please have a seat. As we look again to this text, we we see clearly there's a couple of familiar themes that we've seen regularly as we've gone through Matthew here Uh, two primary things stand out in this text one is the thread that runs throughout Matthew which I've been hammering almost every time I get a chance to, to preach from this pulpit is who is Jesus what is his identity who does Matthew want them to know again he's writing to this primarily Jewish audience who had misunderstood much of their the Old Testament and he wants them to know this is the king this is the king, and, and we're going to see that theme here in this passage, who he really is. And then we're also going to see the theme of responsibility. Who's actually culpable? Who, who, who's the guilty? Who's responsible for Jesus' death? We've already seen the injustice of the trials, and now we're going to move forward into even greater and deeper injustice as we look at the scourging and the, and the crucifixion, the violence that happens towards Christ. On the surface, of the text as we read it as we just did it's pretty clear who's responsible for Jesus death we can write Pilate's name in there he's mentioned nearly in every verse as well as again and again that the chief priests and the elders mentioned in verse 12 verse 18 verse 20 they're certainly responsible and then how about the crowd or all the people that are mentioned in verse 15 and 17 and 20 through 25, there, there's all this culpability that's going around. We've already seen that many people, many of them are just trying to wash their hands of it, trying to pass the buck of responsibility to somebody else. <laughs> but each of them certainly carry a part. Also, it's going to be clear who, who in this passage is called king. We see the Roman governor, that's what he's called, that Matthew chooses. He's Pilate, Pontius Pilate. He, he has the language of kingship on his lips. In verse 11, we, we see that he asks, are you the king of the Jews? In verse 17 and 22, he, he labels Jesus as the one who is called Christ, which is another word for king, the anointed one. And then what follows Our text, in the coming weeks, is simply the aftermath of the trial where the Roman soldiers will mockingly dress him up as a king. Put the robe on his shoulders, a scarlet robe, a crown of thorns on his head, and a reed in his right hand, kneeling before him sarcastically. Hail, King of the Jews! Those same soldiers, or another set of them, would add to the mockery by nailing Jesus' crime above his head on the cross. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So these things, these themes jump out at us, Jesus' kingship and then human responsibility, and they come at us through several ironic contrasts, if you will. We're going to see Jesus, who's the judge of the world, capital J, standing before Pilate, who sits In judgment of him. It's incredible. We see the the Jewish leaders doing everything in their power to get Pilate to sentence Jesus to death, a fellow Jew, wanting the Gentiles to do their dirty work for them. And then we're going to contrast that with a Gentile woman, Pilate's wife, who does her best to have him released. And then we're going to see the theme of the crowd choosing Barabbas. Pilate washing his hands, which only confirms the innocence that is in Christ alone. And then the crowd who is there and willingly takes responsibility, not only on themselves, but on their children. Unwittingly, therefore, prophesying their own destruction. And so as we look today to Jesus' otherworldly kingship, we will seek to see just who holds the responsibility for Jesus' death at the hand of sinners. Three options in this text primarily. Number one, the responsibility of Pontius Pilate. Secondly, the responsibility of the religious leaders. And thirdly, the responsibility of the crowd. And then mixed in there is some helpful, and incredibly insightful things that Matthew puts before us. So let's go to point number one, back to verse 11, the responsibility of Pontius Pilate. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, You have said so. He said that before, hasn't he? (laughs) He said it to the chief priests. When they asked a similar question, he said it to Judas. Judas. When he asked, well, Lord, is it I? It's, it's, it's a, a mysterious way of, of, in essence, pointing the finger and saying, you know it's you. And in essence, Jesus saying that here to Pilate, you know I am. Verse 12, but when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the governor, he's in the scriptures, he kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, There's no mention of him in Matthew up until this chapter. We do know from other sources that from A.D. 26 to around 36, 37, Pontius Pilate was the prefect of Judea the governor, according to what Matthew calls him. And, and that wasn't an easy job. Uh, Judea at the time was known as a very rough and tumble place. They were not happy. The Jewish people were not happy with the Roman government's hand of oppression upon them. And so it, it, it wasn't an easy job. It'd be like today if someone wants to send you to be the gover- you know the governor of the Gaza Strip or something. <laughs> They're not a people known for peace. And so you got to figure out how do I politically work this situation out, right? Matthew wants us to know as well that Pilate is the establishment, if you will, the representation of the Roman government here. And so I'm certain Matthew equates him as as the, the symbol of Roman authority. And so Jesus' trial before Pilate in essence symbolizes this showdown between Christ and Caesar. And so Pilate makes this showdown a bit odd by the way he answers the questions, or the way he asks the questions. He wants to know, "Are you the King of the Jews?" That certainly was the charge that the Jewish leaders had brought to Pontius Pilate. This is a they can't they can't execute him for blasphemy. Roman law would not allow the Jews to put anyone to death, and so they had to come up with some reason for a capital punishment crime, which blasphemy wasn't wasn't uh, good enough for the Romans. And so, what do they do? They 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 bring this charge of sedition before Pontius Pilate. He's saying he's claiming to be a, a king, on par or greater than Caesar. There is no king but Caesar, according to the way the Romans thought. And so so they're they're wanting to bring this charge. So he asked them straight out, well, are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus once again replies, you have said so. Again, that's a very clear way of answering yes. We get a little bit more depth to the conversation from the Gospel of John. In, in, In John 18 we see that clearly he's being unambiguous about how he's answering this question of are you the king of the Jews it says in verse 33 so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him are you the king of the Jews and Jesus answered do you say this of your own accord or did others say it about me it's, it's a clandestine way of kind of saying like you know it in your heart and now are you hearing that from others are you starting to believe it you, you know it's true Pilate answered, "Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Like what in the world would 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 make it so make the Jewish leaders so angry at you that they bring you to us the Gentiles to want you destroyed? What have you done?" Verse 36 in John 18, Jesus answered, "My kingdom is not of this world." If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. His way of telling Pilate, look, yes, I'm a king, but not like you think. It's so much bigger. It's so much greater than that. You have such a limited understanding of perspective of of who I am, and I'm standing before you, and you may be mocking me, but I am the king of all kings from a heavenly kingdom come to earth. It's not of this world. If it was, I guarantee you my army would fight and you all be wiped out. So Pilate says to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. And for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, the question of the ages, what is truth? Truth is standing right in front of him, declaring the truth, and he can't hear so Pilate asks him more questions about why don't you defend yourself? Don't you hear all these accusations that they're saying against you and Jesus responds with silence. He says no more. he's quiet, and Pilate is then greatly amazed he he, he he's offering no defense. He's got a crowd of people wanting to kill him. I'm sure he's wondering, why in the world would a, a teacher that, that speaks in such an awe-invoking way with, with words that are majestic and beautiful and powerful, why would he not defend himself? When unjustly accused of a crime and, and about to be sentenced to scourging and crucifixion, why is he not fighting to be free? And so what does he do? He marvels at Jesus. And Jesus is the marvel of the world. He is the great wonder of the world. He's not the first one to marvel at Jesus. All throughout Matthew and all the Gospels, but Matthew brings it out multiple times. Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Matthew 9.33, when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Matthew 15.30, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Matthew 21, 20, Jesus speaks to the fig tree, and it it withers, and when the disciples saw it, they marveled. Matthew 22, when they heard the teaching of Jesus, they marveled, and here now is Pontius Pilate marveling. At the silence of the Messiah. What's going on? This is the apex of history. This is Isaiah 53, verse 7, fulfilled. His silence shouts of the suffering servant of Isaiah. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And I know Isaiah 53 isn't quoted here, but if you, if you scrape the surface, really of any part of, of Matthew's gospel, but in particular the passion narrative here, if you scrape the surface, w- what oozes out is Daniel's son of man. The the psalm's righteous man, Isaiah's suffering servant, all three together are just dripping all over the text, and we must let it drip here when we see the silence of the Savior. He's not fighting for his rights, but he's willing to take responsibility for others. He's entrusted himself to God, and he bites his tongue which is a really hard thing to do, isn't it? You have an unjust boss or that harsh word from your spouse in a difficult moment and it's really hard to just entrust it to God. And yet Jesus had a greater mission and so should we, by the way. We should also look at him as as many did here, even Pilate, with a sense of awe and wonder and amazement. We should be amazed that Jesus kept quiet then. Because because he kept quiet then, we actually don't have to keep quiet now. We actually can shout, Hallelujah! Praise be to God, now! Yes, Jesus certainly had a defense to offer. He was innocent, and yet he's quiet at the judgment seat Of Pilate, because as as Calvin claimed, he had become answerable for our guilt. Calvin went on to say, God's Son stood trial before a mortal man and suffered accusation and condemnation that we might stand without fear in the presence of God. Christ kept silence then to be our spokesman now. Matthew Henry said, He was arraigned that we might be discharged. His silence is our salvation. And so let us not stay silent. Let us break His silence with a roar of adoration from our hearts through our mouths. We work so hard to try to save ourselves. Jesus gave Himself. And he calls us to do the same. We should consider him. We should meditate on him. We should think of him. And when we do, we should stand in amazement at the Savior. Amazement at the love. Amazement at the trust that he has in his Father and the love for his Father and the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for us and the Father's love for us and all of this wonder that culminates in the Son of God coming to give his life for sinners it should flow out of us as the people of God. We see Pontius Pilate certainly responsible, but we're going to see him as we move on, try to shirk that responsibility with a washing of hands. But we also see point two, the, the responsibility of the religious leaders. That's quite clear. And we look at verse 15. Now at the feast of the governor. At the feast the governor was accustomed to release from the crowd. Any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And when they had gathered. Pilate said to them. Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas. Or Jesus who is called Christ. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Pilate could even see right through them. He knew, you guys are all a sham here. You're envious of him. He's got a position and a a following that you want. You hate him. He's a threat to you, and you want him gone. However, Pilate had this political situation that he had to worry about, and and the 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 biggest threat, the biggest crime, if you will, that a Roman governor could commit was to allow uh, riots to have happen. The Pax Romana was something that happened, the Roman government required of of all of the the the, their whole empire that they had conquered. And so they they would allow the areas that they had conquered to have their own culture, have their own religion, whatever, as long as they confess Caesar is Lord, you're all good, and then just don't 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 get violent, don't start riots. Keep the peace. And the governors of the areas were required to keep the peace. We've already said this area was already known for struggling to keep the peace. And so Pilate's put in this situation here where he's struggling to figure out what to do. And he's, he's knowing they have a motive. He knows these religious leaders aren't concerned about the threats to Roman rule. They're envious of Jesus, they're envious of his, of his popularity. They feel threatened by his, his authoritative ministry. And so they're pushing it along. They, they want him dead at all costs. They are clearly responsible. And so Pilate has an idea. Once a year at the time of the Passover is a gift, quote unquote, to the people. I will set free a prisoner. And so he puts forth a notorious prisoner. Everybody knew about him. He's called a robber or an insurrectionist in Mark. And so certainly he had murdered somebody somewhere in the midst of some type of overthrow of the government. He wasn't sitting in prison. And know this about the Romans. They didn't keep you in prison. They in Roman society, you were either a slave. If you did a crime, you either are a slave or you're executed. That's it. You're not you're not. Hanging around in chains for too long. The only reason you'd be kept in chains for, for a season is waiting on your execution. I happen to believe, as we know, there were two others crucified with Jesus this day, right? The Bible calls them robbers. It's the same word that's used for an insurrectionist. I think that Barabbas was supposed to hang on the middle cross. He's going to be executed. Pilate puts him forth. Here's this notorious murderer. Certainly they're not going to want him. And so he offers to the people, shall I release for you Barabbas or Jesus, whom you, who is called the Christ? This comparison is contrast of Jesus and Barabbas is not accidental, it's quite purposeful, it's in all of the Gospels. And it's interesting that many of the commentators go out of their way to tell us that, that he was a Jewish zealot, a patriot even, who hated the Roman occupation, he, he went about starting riots and all of that, and we certainly know he was involved in some insurrection, we know he was a murderer, but scripture doesn't spend a whole lot of time on the specifics, so we probably shouldn't either. The key focus of our attention is on Jesus. Why is he put forward in such a prominent way then? I believe it's because of the contrast. You see, as one who is completely the opposite of Christ, even his name speaks of the contrast. Bar Abbas, son of the father. You have two sons of the father. One is to be executed and the other is to be set free. Which will you choose? Let the irony sink in for a minute. The guilty son of the father was set free because the innocent son of the father took his place. Can you see it? Can you see the power of this exchange? That it's the power of the gospel. The apostle Paul understood this power of the great exchange. When he wrote these words, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy. For this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. His identification with with the role and title of sinner that Paul writes there, it's not a small thing. It's this view of oneself as as, a... Standing at the foot of the cross, it's the very lens that allows us to view the the full measure of the sacrificial love of God. It allows us to see the real sacrifice required by God for us in becoming real flesh and blood, man. Jesus literally became like us in every way, yet without sin. But on the cross... He went even lower. He had to be sin itself in the eyes of the Father for our sake. 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What a glorious truth substitution. Christ taking the place of the guilty. This is not just the beautiful open door that leads us into relationship with God through Christ by grace through faith. This is also the power of the Christian life today. We live today, our Christian lives, in the power of this substitution. It's the essence of the gospel. It's what empowers the Christian life. It's why Paul was so eager to go preach the gospel to those who were in Rome in Romans 1.15, he says. Why? Because even in the midst of, of our daily struggles, in the midst of a persecuted church in Rome, in the midst of, of struggles in life, struggles in marriage, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. See, the power of the Christian life is the power of a person who is guilty in the worst possible way and yet has been forgiven. And we don't serve God out of ourselves, out of our power. And it's why many times Christians fail again and again and again and just massively are struggling because we're looking at us, not at the Savior. We've all been there. I've been there too many times. You're walking with Jesus. You have a deep relationship with him. You've become known as a person of faith, a good, moral person, and then you blow it. You, You blow it. You sin. And you have options at that moment. You can can look for ways to begin to work to somehow become worthy again in God's eyes. So you think? Welcome to legalism? You can try to earn back his love and his favor and it's wrong. The only way is to get your eyes back to the cross. To be overwhelmed once again. To be amazed once again at his love for you. To relish in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all have, society has popular, their own Jesuses, if you will, their own saviors. There's a bunch of books written about it. A bunch of Jesus authors. They think they know all about Jesus. They just don't find it in the Bible we have saviors in the world religions in the cults in the occult in pop culture probably the most popular savior of the day is ourselves so we think it's a supermarket of spirituality which which savior are we going to choose or we can look to jesus the savior We can know that in Christ we died. In Christ we have been raised again to new life. And therefore now we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. What does that mean? It means that we must consider that we have been found guilty by God for every sin that we have done and will do. And that sin has been punished in the most horrible way, in the cross of Jesus Christ, in Christ. And then in Christ, we've risen from the dead. We're, we're, we're new. The old is gone. The new has come. What punishment remains for you, Christian? What, what condemnation remains for you? None. None. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can we ever be punished worse than being forsaken by God on a cross? Barabbas, the son of the father, was held up before the people. The guilty sinner against the guiltless savior. Jerusalem chose Barabbas. And just as first century Israel chose the wrong Savior, so too we can choose the wrong one to be ours. And the only clear choice is the biblical Jesus. The Holy Scriptures is the only sure standard. It's the only authorized portrait of Jesus. We can't make up our own Jesus. How often have I heard, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. We don't have a right to make up Jesus in our own minds. We study the word. We look to the scriptures. We get the clear picture of who he is from the scripture. And here he is standing in front of the crowd. The governor gives an option. Whom shall I release for you? Which son of the father do you want? And they chose wrong. But in their choice, God's sovereign choice was ruling. As his will was being carried out even through the actions of sinful men. And because of that choice, because the innocent one suffered for the guilty, we can be set free today. In verse 19, it gives us an interesting point where Showing again the innocence of Christ, it says, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, this is Pilate, his wife sent word to him. I don't know about you guys, but if my wife calls me in the middle of a meeting and tells me something's important, I should listen. (laughs) She says, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. The third dream that Matthew speaks of that I believe was sent from God. Another way to establish the innocence of Christ. We, we saw uh, the Magi were warned in a dream. We see Joseph in a dream was told to marry Mary. <laughs> this divine revelation that comes to her, telling her husband to open her, his eyes and and. Instead, he hushes her voice and chooses to listen to the loud crowd. There's, we really don't know much else about Pilate's wife. The the Coptic church, Eastern, um, claims that she became a Christian and and canonized her as a saint, but I'm not going to go that far. (laughs) because There's no sources that I can trust for that. But it's... Enough to say that Matthew certainly emphasizes and therefore strategically places this this scene here for a reason. And what's the reason? I think it's similar to why he places the Gentile wise men in chapter 2 who worships the baby Jesus and this Gentile wise woman in chapter 27 now is the one acknowledging that the man Jesus is is righteous, saying, the Jews, the people of God, you've missed it. You've missed your Messiah. And so we're very soon going to be trudging towards not only the cross, but the resurrection and then the Great Commission, where in chapter 28, Jesus is going to command the disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of who? all nations there's again Matthew a good Jew writing to his good Jewish audience saying guys it's about the nations it's it's all of us let's go to the world the great truth that had been prophesied from long ago That men, women, Jews, Gentiles, servants and masters from every tribe, nation and tongue will all sit down at the table of brotherhood and join hands under one creed. Jesus is Lord of all see it, Isaiah 40, verse 4 and 5. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Or Solomon writing in Psalm 72, verse 17, may his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, and all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. We certainly see. Pontius Pilate was responsible. And we see the religious leaders are certainly responsible. And that responsibility carries on into the next verses, but we're also going to see right alongside of them the responsibility of the crowd. Look at verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with this Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? And we know the answer is none. But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. In trying to release Jesus, if you will, with this masterful plan of, hey, they're surely going to pick this guy, not this guy. Pilate's put handcuffs on himself now. He knows Jesus is innocent of the fabricated charges. He hasn't broken any Roman law, and yet there's the cry of the crowd. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. So verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. It's it's your responsibility. What What a cowardly and futile act. Some external ritual cleansing supposed to Wash over the shedding of innocent blood and your place in it, Pontius Pilate. He comes off guiltier after he washes his hands than before. Again, I think mentioned last week, it just brings me back to Lady Macbeth trying to rub this outdamned spot out of her hands. I can't get the spot out. A little water isn't going to wash away your sin. Washing hands doesn't cleanse the defiled soul. All the water in the world cannot wash blood from a guilty person's hand. Only blood removes blood. And only Jesus' innocent blood removes sin's stain. And so Pilate washes his hands while the crowd willingly dirties their own blames being thrown around from from Judas to the Sanhedrin to the governor until finally it culminates in verse 25 with all the people. It's the climax of our text here. Because God's people, Israel, grab hold of the guilt collectively. It's a high point in the narrative, but I believe it's the lowest point in Israel's history. Where in verse 25, they say, all the people say, his blood be on us and on our children. And that's perhaps the lowest and maybe the saddest verse in the Bible. It's sad because in a historically limited way, the the self-curse came true. Because the generation that chose Barabbas would... 33 years later, follow other, another Barabbas kind of like rebel into war against Rome, and in so doing, they dug their own graves. They tore down their own temple, leveled the, the city walls, ended up sacrificing their own children. It's also sad because too many Christians or people who claim to be Christians for too many generations would use this self-curse as somehow God's eternal curse on Jews. Many have used it for anti-Semitic reasons and have done much harm not only to the world but to the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, The church... Is at its best when armed with love and pointing the finger of accusation inward. Mine was the transgression. So, verse 26 closes our text. And he released for them Bar- Barabbas, Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So, these verses are sad, and the coming verses that were be going over as we look to the cross certainly are are very sad but listen it's not all sorrows these texts are not all tears for jesus knew that his people knew not what they did on the cross he declares father forgive them for they don't know what they do this jesus died to save his people from their sins It was just weeks later where before the same religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, there's another man of God standing in front of them whose life had been completely changed and revolutionized. In Acts chapter 5, it says, When they had brought them and set them before the council, Peter's here. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Listen to this. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Which I find kind of ironic. It's like, well, what what did you say a couple weeks ago? (laughs) You welcomed that blood on yourself. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed and by hanging him on a tree. But here's the hope, the hope for all sinners, even the, the high priest, even the religious leaders and the members of the Sanhedrin, many of whom the scriptures say became believers. He says God exalted this Christ at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel And forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And so through the sorrow and through the the challenging couple weeks that are ahead of us. As we look and feel the weight of the cross and the suffering of Christ. We can't stay there. We got to get our eyes to, to understand what's it all for. What's all the suffering for? And the suffering is for this. We're going to be singing it here in the coming month. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So who then is responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus? Judas betrays him. Responsible? check. Peter denies him, check. The chief priests hate him, check. Herod mocks him, check. The crowds call for his crucifixion, check. Pilate washes his hand and condemns him, check. Barabbas is the guilty but gets to go free, check. But lest we just stop and say them, we must remember the words that we'll sing in just a moment. Behold the man upon a cross, my guilt upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished, and his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. So I have a question on the back of your notes. Who's responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ? And you could write that long list, but I I think you should just write your name there. But I don't think you should stop there. I think you should go for the ultimate. I think you should cross your name out. And you should write, it was the love of a father. Who ultimately is responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus? It's God Himself. It was the plan of God, it's the redemption of sinners. How deep the Father's love for us! How vast beyond all measure that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Jesus, the son of the father, the true son of the father, the innocent son of the father, was scourged and crucified. He was despised, rejected, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, oppressed. Why? Isaiah tells us, for our transgressions, for our iniquities. It's what brought our healing. The chastisement of the cross brought us peace. And so, yes, guilty Barabbas was released and and the innocent Jesus was convicted. Why? To symbolize theologically that God's judgment for sinners fell on Jesus. Isaiah 53 tells us he was smitten by God. And afflicted. In verse 6, it says the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Call it what you wish. We, we, we use big theological words. We call it penal substitutionary atonement. I like to call it the great exchange. We've sung about it. His robes for mine. Call it the joyous exchange. Whatever you like, call it what you like as long as you recognize it as the greatest news that the world has ever known. What a joy. When you put it all together and you begin to see that substitution was necessary for my sins to be forgiven. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us.